0: When you find Nehemiah chapter 8, let's stand to honor the reading of the Word of God. Remain standing for a moment of prayer. If you've not read Nehemiah chapter 8 before, then I think you're going to find it to be a quite surprising chapter in light of the worship that we've just done and what we are doing. Look for those indicators of whether our worship this morning has been anything at all like what we're going to see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. I also want to encourage you to, when you get the monthly calendar this month, to read the newsletter. Um, I have a message in there for the whole congregation concerning some terminology. Pastor Randy has some notes in there as well. But it goes right along the lines with Nehemiah chapter 8. I want you to hear now and follow along with me the living, breathing, infallible, inerrant word of the living God. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, and they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Madaniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, and Mishael, and Machajah, and Hashem, and Hashbodanda, and Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. How about that? Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jammon, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hadiah, Messiah, Keltia, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pariah, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Then they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. And may God add a blessing to the reading and now to the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, again we ask you to give us the grace of understanding and give us a heart of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. This is probably my favorite chapter in the Old Testament. What a great chapter explaining to us how and why and what God's people did. I titled today's message, And Let the Reformation Begin. The Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther nailed 90, nailed a document consisting of 95 doctoral errors of the Roman Catholic Church to the door of the church where he was a priest and teacher in Wittenberg, Germany. The eventual outcome of his acts resulted in what came to be known as the Protesters' Reformation, or what we have called today the Protestant Reformation. Although Luther is considered to be the match that lit the fire, he was certainly not the only person that God used to ignite the Protestant Reformation. There were many men that came before Luther that laid the groundwork for the Protestant Reformation. Men who gave their lives for truth. Men like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe who struggled and strived to have the Bible translated into English more than a hundred years before the 1611 King James. Luther was nearly put to death because of his desire to put the Bible in the common language of his people, into German. From this Reformation, some truths came about. We call them the Solas of the Reformation. The five Solas of the Reformation. Solas is just Latin for alone. The five alones. Now, the Reformation produced a great deal of truth and writings that continue to burn today. If in nowhere else in me and in you and in men like Al Moeller and John Piper and in men like and in and in men like John MacArthur. And in, 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 in a, in a, in a great deal of other men, R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson, Michael Horton, and we could go on and on and on in our own day and age. In previous days and age, James Pettigrew Boyce, the founder of the first Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, now located in Louisville, Kentucky. And B.H. Carroll, the co-founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary out in Dallas, Texas and of other great men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and John Gill and John Owen and the great Baptist writer John Bunyan, all consumed by these laws of the Reformation. So what are they? You're going to hear about them coming up. Read the newsletter. Let me tell you what the first one is, though, because it's contingent to today's text. Sola Scriptura. Only the Bible. The Bible alone, but not only The Bible. Let me say that again. It says the Bible alone. That's what sola scriptura means. But not only the Bible. If we say the Bible alone, then what we say is that we determine what we are to do from God's Word. It is the highest. If you look at all of the writings, if you look at all of the writings, at the peak of the writing is the Scripture. Everything else comes underneath of it. The Bible alone is our our authority. Our sole authority final authority. But it's not only the Bible. If it's only the Bible, then we need not have any other book in print at all about the Bible, because we have the Bible. That's not the doctrine of sola scriptura. It's the Bible alone is our final authority. But there are a great number of other writings that help us to understand the teaching of the Bible, like the Heidelberg Catechism that we quote every Sunday morning. Every one of those questions and answers is rooted right in Scripture. It's a systematic explanation of doctrinal truth in Scripture. What happened whenever Josiah read the Scripture to the people? They tore their clothes and wept. What happened whenever Peter preached the Scripture and explained the Scripture? What did the people do? Sirs, what must we do to be right with God? The Bible is the highest... Authority that a believer has. Now let me tell you why that caused such a problem in the Roman Catholic Church. Because Martin Luther came to understand that there was a doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church that said this, when church tradition crosses up with church with Scripture, the believer is to go with the church and not the Scriptures. And Luther said, no, we are to go with the Scriptures. Let every man be found a liar, but God be found True. The Bible is to be the source from which we find our beliefs. Not church tradition, not grandma, not what we've always done, but what does the right understanding of the Bible teach us? Josiah understood that in his day. There had been syncretism, synchronism that had been going on. There had been that worship of Baal and Astra and Molech and the worship of Yahweh all mingled together. The, the temple was a mess and it was, a, it was like an attic that was just cluttered. And he said, go into that temple and clean it out. And they got to cleaning out the attic, just like when you clean out your attic and you find something and you say, I thought I lost this. You ever have that? It's like Christmas, isn't it? And they find in there a copy of the law. And they begin to read the law. And when they read the law, it's like a measuring line. Listen, don't ever have George come over to your house and inspect something that you've built. Because he'll come with a tape measure and a square. He'll hurt your feelings. I never let him come and check it out. I tell him when he gets out of his truck, leave your tape measure and square in the truck and just eyeball it. But he's got a calibrated eyeball. He can just tell when it's not right. I'm a handyman. Do-it-yourselfer. I, I, I measure what Nice. you know what they got the word of God out and it was like a square and a tape measure and they saw how crooked they were and they saw where they were off whenever Peter began to preach to those people in Pentecost they saw how crooked they were and saw where they were off That's what we have in Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the the refugees have come back and when they get back, Ezra, remember Ezra? Ezra the priest and Ezra the scribe. He does all the stuff with the restoring of the temple and then we get to Nehemiah and Nehemiah is a governor. He's not a priest, he's not a scribe and he gets the walls rebuilt and I love, I love this symbolism of equality but submission to role. Nehemiah knows his role. When the walls are rebuilt and it's time for worship... Who comes to the forefront? Look in your Bible. And all the people gathered as one at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked "As this is in the book of Nehemiah, and they asked Ezra the scribe. They didn't say, well, there's this kingdom of priests and anybody can do it. Nehemiah, you've done a good job rebuilding the wall. Preach us a sermon. They said, Nehemiah, you're the governor. Your role is to rebuild the wall. Now it's time to have worship. Get the trained priest up here. We want to hear the Word of God. And they heard the Word of God that day. And when they heard the Word of God that day, a great reformation began to take place. What does the word reformation mean? I get asked that a lot. What does it mean to be reformed? Well, let me ask you a question. If you if your son or daughter gets in trouble at school and they have to go to a reformed school, what does that mean? They go to a school where their incorrect behavior is corrected. They go to a school where their incorrect thinking is corrected. They go to a school where their incorrect activity is set to be corrected. It's to be reformed. Whenever you whenever you remodel your kitchen, what are you doing to your kitchen? You're reforming that kitchen. You're yanking the old out and you're the new end. Or sometimes you buy a house and you find that something's broke or needs to be moved, removed. What do you do? You tear down the old and you rebuild the new. You reform it. You restructure it. Reformation when I use it is predominantly the doctrines and the truth that come out of the 16th century but let me tell you something Reformation isn't something that happened to us it's something that should be happening to us all the days of our life. Unless you have been sanctified and you are perfect, you should be constantly being reformed. Reformed. Reformed into the image of Christ. It's an ongoing process. I titled today's message, not because of the 15th century, but because of what we see in this 8th chapter, and that is, Let the Reformation Begin. Four marks. I want to give you four marks of true reformation from Nehemiah chapter 8. And they're all rooted in and tenaciously committed to the battle cry. Sola Scriptura. Reformation begins, first of all, when God's people read God's Word. Reformation begins when God's people read God's Word. Look at verse 1 again. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. To do what? To bring it and read it to us. Now listen, they all didn't have a Bible that they could carry with them. You didn't have the printing press that they had. Whenever they had Scripture, it was a parchment. Oftentimes, it was a large parchment with a big roll. And they would unroll a little and roll it up, and would have back two big rolls and unroll it. And that's how they would have the Word of God read to them. The common person didn't carry a parchment and the Scripture with them. But they wanted the Word of God read to them. Notice that the people asked Ezra to come and read the book of the law to Moses to them. They wanted to hear the book of the law in their presence. They wanted to hear from God. Church, God still speaks today. The same way that He spoke to Abraham, the same way that He spoke to Jacob, the same way that He spoke to Moses, and the same way that He spoke to the prophets, He speaks today because this is the living, breathing, speaking Word of God. You can read this Word of God, and if you interpret it correctly, you can say, Thus says the Lord. This is the Word of God. When we say, This is the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. And you respond, Thanks be to God. This is what we're saying. God has just spoken to us today in His Word. And you're saying, Thanks be to God that He still speaks. I noticed this morning that the liturgy was dragging a little. I don't know if it's too warm in here or what. We were a little dragging. Uh, We got to that second catechism question and it was like we forgot what we're doing. You know what? When we read the Word of God, it shouldn't cause us to drag. It should cause our ears to perk up. Let me ask you something. Has Has somebody important ever spoken to you? You ever been somewhere where somebody important was going to be and, and they actually stopped and spoke to you? you ever been in a military? Ever been in a military formation and the colonel or the general was inspecting? And normally when the general inspects, he just walks down there and he looks at everybody, you know, like a doggy and pony show. But every once in a while he stops and he says, Soldier, what's your name? All of a sudden you got to do this. You're nervous. You've got to look down. What is my name? You talking to me? You're nervous because the general's talking to you. Or the boss is talking to you. Or the mayor is talking to you. Or the president is talking to you. Let me tell you something. When you read the Word of God, God is talking to you. He's speaking to you. When you say, does He mean me? You can answer, yes, He means me. This whole chapter is about the Word of God. You know that nine times in the Hebrew he, he refers to the Torah in this one chapter. You know there's only 18 verses and nine times he refers to the Torah. i told you before that it's thought that Ezra is the author of Psalm 119, which is all about the, wor- the worth and the value of the Word of God. It's all about the Torah. Notice also that Nehemiah tells us that all the people gather as one at the square, which was in front of the water gate in verse 1. The Watergate was the most likely area where everyone could meet together in one place at one time because it had a large outdoor plaza. In verse 2, he defines what he means by all the people. Look at verse 2. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. That's the all the people. Men... Women and all who could listen with understanding. Let me, tell you what, let me tell you what Ezra and Nehemiah did not do. They did not say, let's get the kids together over here and give them some some, uh, some little games and coloring sheets. And let's get the, the middle-aged kids over here and let's let them go play kick the can and we'll give them a little verse about it first and then we'll let them go play kick the can. And let's let the high schoolers go up here and we'll let them go down by the Jordan River and do a little bit of fishing. Let's just get the adults together. No... No, when it was time to hear the Word of God preached and spoke and read, He gathered everyone together. I want to tell you something. I think that we do injustice to the health of the body of Christ whenever we take and constantly break them out and break them out and break them out. There's a time for that. There's a place for that. We call it Bible study. But the reason we do not have children's church or Memorial Baptist Church is because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. The best place for these kids to hear the Word of God preached is by the person that's the most qualified to do it, and that's the preacher. If your kids can sit still for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or an hour in school, then they can sit in a worship service where they get to stand up and sit down and sing and listen for 20 or 30 minutes. Give me a little leeway there of preaching. Let me tell you something. The genuine strength of any church is the direct correlation to the number of members that take the Word of God serious. Do you take the Bible serious? Do you read it and meditate on the message found within its cover? Do you long to read and explain and apply the Word of God to your life? That's the key to reformation. I cannot overstate how important it is for God's people to read God's Word. Life-changing reformation comes by reading the Word of God. Number two, reformation comes through hearing God's Word. Look at verses 2 through 6. Then Ezra the priest brought the people before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Early morning until midday. Can I ask you a question? How many of you got tired of me reading from Second Kings chapter 21 and 22? Did anybody get tired of me reading? Can you imagine showing up here this morning at sunup? Showing up here this morning at sunup and me reading until noon and you're standing the whole time and all I'm doing is reading the text? They did. And they loved it. You know why? There'd been a famine of the Word of God. Let me ask you another question. If I had a giant pickup load full of $100 bills, and I said, you get one every time you come through the line, and you can get in the line as long as there's money, how many of you would complain about standing in line for six hours to get you another $100 bill? Nobody would. Someone would say, how many times have you been through? Man, I've been through ten times. Look at these dead presidents. How long have you been in line? Five hours, and I hope that they got enough to go till dark, because I'll go through another five hours. But how we complain when we just hear the reading of God's Word? They read the Word of God. They read it aloud so that they could hear. Let me tell you what's taking place here. Look in verse 2. There's a time, there's a time indicator in verse 2. Do you see it? The first day of the seventh month at the end of verse 2. It's interesting that our text... For today is on, a, is on a weekend holiday. This was a weekend month. The seventh month in Israel is called the celebration month or the crown month due to the number of feasts that were held in the seventh month. On the first day of the seventh month, the people celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, which was a holy assembly. On the tenth day, are you with me? On the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. On the tenth day of the seventh month, they celebrated the Day of Atonement. The sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Yom Kippur. Uh, uh, Then from the 15th to the 22nd day, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. The reading of the text took place on the first day of the seventh month, which is also now called Rosh Hashanah. This was one celebrating month, I tried to think what is, comes close to us being able to, to contextualize this. Maybe from Thanksgiving to New Year's. Because the truth of the matter is, from Thanksgiving to New Year's, it's one party after the next party after the next party, isn't it? It's Christmas party and work party and family party and family get-together and church get-together and school get-together. Right? So that's how you would understand this whole month of go- things going along this line in this seventh month. In verse 3, we're told that Ezra read the word of God in the presence of the people. It's interesting that God has given us two eyes and two ears, but only one mouth, don't you think? Two eyes and two ears, but only one mouth. I wonder if it's because God expected us to look and listen twice as much as we speak. Also, we know from Mark chapter 4, verse 9, and other places in the New Testament, that just because you have ears does not mean you can hear. Can I get an amen from mom? Just because they got ears don't mean they can hear. You know that they heard you say, Brush their teeth. You know that they heard you say, Pick up those socks. You know that He heard you say, Cut the grass. But the teeth don't get brushed, the socks don't get picked up, and the grass doesn't get cut until you get really loud. Right? Just because you have ears doesn't mean you can hear. Jesus is the one that said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and take care how you listen. Notice in verse 3 also how they listened to the Word of God. We're told that they listened attentively. Do you see that in verse 3? He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. All the people were attentive to the book of the law. And in verses 5 and 6, we see that they had reverence. They had for the Word of God. And And then Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up reverence for the word of God attentive to the word of God and as they listened to the word of God there was a point in which spontaneously they threw their hands in the air and they said amen and amen you know someone said to me recently that well, I don't like being told to put my hands in the air it's Pentecostal I don't know whether it's Pentecostal or not but I'll tell you this it's biblical someone complained to me the other day because I had sketched out the the, the drawing of a, of a dove and they said, I don't like to see the drawing of a dove because it reminds me of Pentecostal. I don't know whether it's Pentecostal or not, but I'll tell you this. My Bible says that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up and the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove. You know what? Somebody else's abuse doesn't take away my rights. You hear me? You don't let somebody else's misunderstanding keep you from telling the truth. Somebody might misunderstand grace, but I'm not going to stop preaching grace. Right? You got it? I'll tell you what else we see in this Word. They were attentive to the word. I want to ask you a question. Let's just be, let's just be perfectly honest for a moment. Do I ever bore you? Now you can say yes, because I want to tell you what. I preach 150 times at least a year. Year in and year out. You want to talk about, you want to talk about tough staying creative? And I'm not a creative person. I mean, art class for me was stapling a couple pieces of papers together, okay? When my kids have a, have an art homework assignment, they know not to come to me. Art is not my forte. They want something broken? I can fix that. I can do that. Okay? They want to play a game? I can do that. They want to play baseball? I can do that. But I'm not artistic. Do you ever get bored? Sometimes people say to the church, they go, you know, church was boring. Let me ask you a question. If you had a rich relative who had died, I mean, he was rich, really rich, And the executor of the will comes to you and they say to you, Charlie, your rich relative that died has left something for you and you need to come to the reading of the will. If Charlie went to the reading of the will and he had been sitting there for about 45 minutes or 50 minutes and the guy that was reading the will wasn't very energetic, he was somewhat monotone, He didn't tell very many stories or jokes. He wasn't very engaging. Do you think that Charlie would lean over to Robin and say, I can't take the way this guy's reading this will any longer. Let's get out of here. He wouldn't care one bit how that guy was reading the will. He's waiting to hear, and to Charlie Antle, I have left. And then he says, tell me. Do you know that when the Word of God is being preached and taught, God is speaking to you, and if you get bored by the preacher, then focus on the Word of God, because He's got a message for you. Let's get the text right. If we get the text right, God speaks to every one of us. This book is God's last will and testament, and He has left all of us something. So let's strive to listen to the Word attentively and with reverence. Now, why do we stand for the reading of some scripture and not all? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, we see in the scripture that in some places they stand in reverence of the reading of the Word of God, but we see in other places where they sit. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him as he taught and read the scriptures. So, what do we do? We try to keep a balance. We sit when we hear some read, and we stand when we hear the preaching text read. It just maintains a balance, that's all. And I'll tell you this, if you go to a church and they don't stand for the reading of God's Word, they've not sinned, alright? This isn't prescriptive, it's descriptive. You understand the difference? We don't, have, we don't have God saying, and if you don't stand up in the presence of my Word when it's read, you're sinning against... We don't have that. What we see is we just see a sign of reverence. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a child say to you, thank you, and yes sir, and no sir? And it makes you feel kind of good, doesn't it? But you know what? Other children don't say yes, sir, no, sir, but they still are polite, right? They might say thank you or please or okay, yes, thank you very much. But they don't say sir or no or call you Mr. or such and such. See, it doesn't matter. Some just have uh, one level of respect and some have another level of respect. It's not so much about whether we have to stand up or sit down. It's a matter of whether we're listening with reverence and attentively. So what we've seen thus far is what? Reformation comes by reading the Word of God and by hearing the Word of God. Reformation is also fueled by careful exegesis of the Word of God, verses 7 and 8. Let's look there real quick. Careful exegesis of the Word of God fuels reformation. And then Ezra blessed the Lord the God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, and while lifting up their hands, and then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then he mentions these priests. And he says, the Levites explained. I want you to notice that word explain. That's a careful word there. It's worth underlining or highlighting. The Levites explained the law to the people. It's not just that. I want you to look in verse 8. They read from the book from the law of God. Look at the next word there. Translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Do you know what this is describing? It's describing careful exegesis of the Scripture. You know what it's describing? It's describing priests saying to the people, the Scriptures were written in Hebrew, you speak Aramaic, let me read the Scripture in Hebrew, let me translate into Aramaic, and let me help you to understand the intent of the meaning of the text. That's that's where Reformation comes from. Good expository preaching. Have you ever been and listened to a sermon and the text was read and he never referred back to the text? He never said, look into the text, underline here, follow the line of thought here. He just gave a good religious talk. I hear sermons like that all the time. You know what? Every once in a while, that's okay. My, my, my preaching professor that I had in college said this. He said, I preach a topical sermon once a year and then repent. Topical sermons to me are like ding-dongs. I like a ding-dong every once in a while. But if you eat two or three in a row, your tongue feels like Lord. He can't take it. Let me tell you something. Topical preaching will not grow you in your faith in Christ because all you have to go on are the points of the preacher. But expository preaching will give you roots because he's going to give you text, chapter and verse. Here's the Word of God. This is what it says expository, good, careful exegesis. Now, let me tell you something. That doesn't mean, just because we have the priest explaining, it doesn't mean that 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 you have to have me to help you with the Bible. There's plenty of the Bible that you can read and understand by yourself. Mark Twain said, it's not the part of Scripture that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the part that I do understand that bothers me. You know what? You don't have to have me with you in your living room to read the Bible. But there are some things that you need help with. Because you know what? The Bible was written in three languages. In Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And uh, I mean, I'm not boasting when I say this, but I have been to school for 12 years on the Bible. And I have had Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, not Aramaic. Because of the Vulgate. And you know what? It does take a little bit of work to get in there sometimes and say, you know what? This, this could be a problem text. That's why we come to church and we find somebody who's qualified and we sit into their teaching and we listen to how they carefully handle the Scriptures. You want reformation? Stay in church. If you don't want, to, if you don't want your life to be changed at all, then you just interpret the Scripture into your own authority and your own strength and don't consult anybody who's got a little bit more than you on it. How many times have you ever tried to do a job and done it on your own and it was just just unbelievably hard? And then you ask the guy that does it professionally and he comes in and begins to show you some things to do. And you said, man, I wish I would have thought of that. I wrote an article this week for the Indiana Baptist. It's going to come out next month. I entitled it, Men Love Tools. And I opened up my article by saying something along these lines. I said, recently a friend of mine bought a new house and he had to have a fence put up. Now, I've put up a fence before. Now, don't ask Keith Davis about the quality of my work. He was there to inspect, and he gave me a failing grade. But you know what? I figured, how hard could it be? Dig a hole, put a, put a piece of wood in the ground, and nail some wood to it, right? I found out it was really hard. I went to investigate this guy that was putting up the fence for Jeff. I wanted to see what he was doing. You know what I found he had? Man, he had the tools. He had a tractor that didn't just have hydraulic an auger. He had a tractor that had downward hydraulics. Now, some of you all know what that means. If you don't, trust me, that's pretty cool. That thing would dig through anything. He had all the tools to do it right. And he was efficient. He was fast. And if you go and look at that fence, I'm telling you what, that fence is level. That fence looks... Jeff, wanted, Jeff said, you want to help me put up a fence? I went, dude, if you put a, if you put a marble on my fence, it never stops rolling. Okay? I'm the do-it-yourselfer who you just soon, I do it myself to my stuff. (laughs) You know what? Every once in a while you need a professional, don't you? You need the professional to come in and say, let me show you some things that you've missed. Let me show you how you've misunderstood an argument. Be careful about jumping on bandwagon theology. I'll tell you what. Our theology was rooted in Jesus and the apostles. We don't need new stuff. We need old stuff. We don't need the latest trend. We don't need what sounds good. We need what is good. And we need to build it right from the Word of God. Let me give you the final point on this. Reformation not only comes by reading and hearing the Word of God. It doesn't only come through exegesis. Let me tell you what else. Exegesis without application is a stillborn baby. The Reformation results in transformation. Reformation results in transformation. Let me give you five real quick sub-points right from your text. It results in repentance. Verse 9. Look what happened. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping. They were weeping. You know why they were weeping? Because when they heard the word of God and they understood the word of God, they found themselves just like Isaiah, saying, Woe is me. Woe is me. What have I done? Reformation results in repentance. When people hear and understand the word of God, they wept over their sin. When was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time you wept? Now listen, we don't all cry. Not everybody's emotional. But I want to tell you this. We're all emotional beings created in the image of God. So if you didn't cry, when was the last time you were grieved over your sin? When was the last time you were sick over your sin? When was the last time you were burdened about your sin? When was the last time that you found yourself on your face crying out to God, Woe is me, God. Woe is me. How in the world can it be that I've been redeemed for this long and I'm doing this? Let me tell you how it'll happen. Get regularly in the Word of God and it'll happen. Reformation brings repentance. Let me tell you a second thing that it brings it brings joy. God is not some killjoy. God breaks your heart to mend your heart. Look at verse 10. And then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat and drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is what he was saying. You've broken, been broken by the Word of God. Now go to God in joy. Reformation brings a broken heart that's mended by Christ that brings joy unspeakable. I'll tell you this, the only hope I've got is that Christ has paid it all all to him. I owe my sin has left a crimson stain, He washes it white as snow, and that gives me joy, and then I'll give you joy I want to tell you a third, a third result of. Reformation, transformation. And that is that it will prompt you to do something. Look at verse 10 again. Look at what they did. And then He said to them, Go eat of the fat and drink of the sweet. And do what? And send portions to Him who has nothing prepared. In other words, God doesn't just save you with you in mind. God saves you and me with others in mind. I couldn't help but quoting Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, where he said to the ones who had been converted... Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. When God saves you, He saves you to then put you in His covenant community and outfit you in the armor of God and then go out and battle for the kingdom. He doesn't save you so that you can be your own little private entity and go live in a cave somewhere or stay in your own little residence. He saves you to bring you in and graft you into the body because the body of Christ is who He's coming back for. The body of Christ is who He's given His promises to. The body of Christ is what's going to reign with Him forever and ever and ever. The body is made up of individuals, but it is referred to consistently as the body of Christ. Let me give you a fourth characteristic of reformation transformation its obedience look at verse look at verse 17 in fact let me just let me show you what happens here look i want you to look at verse 14 we're going to let's follow the let's follow let's follow the obedient line here okay it says they found written in the law how the lord had commanded through moses that the sons of israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month so they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem. Now hold on, time out, wait a minute. They didn't have a committee meeting to say we have found this in the Bible. Do you think we ought to do it? They didn't get the group together and say hold on, that's going to require too much time. They just read it in the book and said wait a minute, it's right there in the book. It's as plain as day. This is what God expects us to do. How long had it been since they'd done it? Anybody know? It's right there in the text. Since the days of Joshua the son of Nun. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. That's why I called it and let the Reformation begin. I want to tell you something. We need some Reformation thinking in this country. We need men to stop making God small and man big. And let's get God back in his rightful place in our puny little minds where he's big and we're small. You know what the Reformation brought for them? It brought obedience. They read it in the law and they said, go out into the wilderness and get yourself some branches. We've got to build some lean-to's. And we've got to have this feast of booze. It's called a feast of booze or a feast of tents. And it was to commemorate the time that they lived in the wilderness when God brought them out of Egypt. They read it and they did it. Let me ask you, are you like that? Do you just read it in the Bible and do it? That's the way we ought to be. We ought to just read it in the Bible and do it. Instead, what we do is we look for every reason why we shouldn't do it. Well, we live by grace now, not by law. Well, you know we live in a different day. Well, you know this is this is America. Well, I'm trying. We look for all of these reasons why we shouldn't do it. I'm not saying we do everything. There are some things that Christ has done for us that never need to be repeated. But you know what? Most of the stuff that I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. We read it in the book and we give every excuse why we shouldn't do it. Reformation brings transformation. And it will result in obedience from you and me. Finally, I'll give you the last point. It ought to accumulate in worship. Reformation ought to accumulate in worship. Look at verse 18. And he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. You know what they did? They worshiped. When we get our view of God right, our worship will take on an unbelievable dynamic. You know what ought to happen in worship? You ought to be able to come into worship. And you ought to be able to hear that we worship God and Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we ought to proclaim His name and we ought to confess our sin and we ought to pray like He said to pray and we ought to hear His Word read and we ought to be taught to sing and to pray and to repent and then we ought to be encouraged by His Word and then we go out unified as a body strengthened to live in a fallen world as lights set upon a hill. I close by showing you just one more time how the progression of understanding and obedience works together. One more time. They found written in the law in verse 14 and in verse 16, they went out. They saw it and they did it. I pray that God will give us all ears to hear and wills to obey His word. May we forever be in a process of reformation, constantly being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. Reformation isn't something that happened to us, it should be something that is happening us. But you've got to begin with conversion. You can't reform yourself. Christ must reform you. You can't make yourself acceptable. He makes you acceptable. You can't earn your way or work your way to heaven. You only receive it by grace, through faith. If you've not received salvation in Christ alone, then why put it off another day why not today why not receive christ today let's pray let's sing